Good afternoon. This is Richard Chang with the Sativa segment. We're filming episode 14 today. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to say that this episode is fueled by Cholson M&A Advisors. It's a sell-side business brokerage firm here in Dallas, Texas. If you'd like to know more about it, they are listed on LinkedIn and several other platforms. Um, today, we have a guest. He lives here in Dallas, Texas, but his operations is in Oklahoma. Welcome, TJ Meta. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for coming. Um, before we get started to talk about your business and your background, I'd like to let you know that you are officially the first guest on the Sativa segment in this new studio. Now, this may be temporary, but historically, people have always seen the, you know, the brick wall background right. so this is this is a bit of a change for for me and obviously um you know you're the first guest that is experiencing this whole you know backdrop it's great i like it i hope it's not messing with your mojo i i hope my mojo does not change <laughs> <laughs> so i would like to bring the right mojo for for, uh, for this episode um so tell me a little bit about you i know we've worked together you, just to be clear you are a client uh, of mine and I, I've represented you legally. Mm -hmm. um, but tell me a little bit about you as an individual. Uh, I haven't gotten to know you too well, mm -hmm. but I do know that you operate um, in several uh, aspects within the cannabis industry. That's correct. Um, but that's not your primary job. That is not my primary job. So I'm here, uh, I've been in Dallas since 2012, moved here after college and I grew up in Miami, Florida. But uh, I uh, moved here after college. My parents kind of insisted that I come and be close to them. They moved here in 08 when I left for college. And I started my main business in which I import tile and natural stone, marble, granite, et cetera. And that's my primary business. That's what I do on a daily basis. That's a significantly bigger business than the cannabis business. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, that's kind of my baby and I do it every day and we've done well and grown it significantly. And that's based here in Dallas. I sell nationwide. But it's based here in Dallas. And then uh, cannabis was my first investment in, in, an, uh, in another business outside of this one when I started to find success and stability in this one. Mm -hmm. And it's also the first time I have uh, partnered with somebody. So that I did partner with someone on the cannabis business. That's always both a, can be a blessing and a, and a, and a curse. It's <laughs> a learning on, experience. Depending it's on a, who you get in, uh, get in cahoots with, right? Yeah, well, you can't do everything yourself Yeah, as I learned. So, yeah. you know. But let's back up just a little bit. I'd love to hear more about your uh, investment strategy and also your decision to invest into the cannabis industry. But um, you mentioned that you're from Miami, Florida. Correct. Uh, we do have that in common and that I spent some time in South Florida. That's where I went to law school. Mm -hmm. um, but where, where did you go to college? I actually went to a small school in Ohio. It's called Oberlin College. It's, oh, I know uh, it's Oberlin. a small, yeah, small yeah. liberal arts school. And I played Division three football there. So. That's that's great. A, yeah, it's a long story, but uh, it's not where my parents wanted me to go. Where? But, uh, uh, what? What position did you play? I played center, and uh, no yeah, kidding. I was uh, I was a little thicker back then. I, I was quick, but uh, I played center, and then I played a little bit of defense. Uh, they moved me around. Okay. I only played a couple of years, but um, good school though. Yeah, it's a good school. It's cool. It's different, mm -hmm. and uh, I uh, no regrets. Glad I went out there. Midwest in the middle of cornfields was not what I was anticipating. Mm -hmm. And growing up in South Florida, I'd never experienced winter like that. You, know, had, you didn't have any desire to go back to South Florida and live there? I would have liked to at that time, but I'm, I'm actually really grateful that I moved to Texas. Texas has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. Good place for family, good place for business, uh, especially during COVID. Sure. Uh, it, was, it was nice to be here versus uh, some of my friends' experiences along the coast. And uh, more restrictions yes. on the coastal cities. Yeah, it was, there, was, <laughs> so. there were way fewer restrictions here, which you know you, you could cut either way on on how you feel about that. But for us, it was it was nice. We were still able to operate and uh, just to feel a sense of normalcy here that mm -hmm. people didn't elsewhere. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, and so you moved here. Mm -hmm. You of of course are in the tile business, um, and we've talked about that. Although mm -hmm. that's not. Um, primarily of how I got to know you. Right. Um, you've made some money in, in that industry and Correct. that still continues to be your bread and butter. Correct. When did you decide to consider cannabis as a potential investment um, opportunity? So I always had a, you know, a fascination uh, with cannabis 
And there was there was already all this media, you know, they had uh, weeds and all these other shows, mm-hmm. kind of discussing. There was a mystique around it for my generation, and uh, there were friends of mine when we were getting out of college. Some that actually left college early to head west for the Green Rush. You know, moved up mm-hmm. to moved to California, moved to Oregon, moved to Washington to get themselves involved. And so I already had some level of interest. I'd visited a friend of mine in Seattle that was doing well and another friend that was doing well in Colorado. They weren't business owners, but they had uh, gotten involved in the industry. I found it fascinating. So I I had a desire to do it, but I I also had, you know, A, I needed to build up liquidity to be able to invest. And then those markets, as they became more established, became very expensive. And, and I, I needed something in arm's reach. That was certainly my condition. So what I always told myself is once it comes to Texas, I'm jumping in, you know. Which and, is ironic because um, historically Texas has been f- uh, fairly restrictive in correct. many ways, right? Yeah, and it's likely, as you informed me, it's likely to be one of the last places to unleash that industry. Like uh, highly unlikely. Right. Uh, until the very end, right. There you go. So, uh, but, you know, I told this to my now partner, who I met through uh, my network here in Dallas. I knew him to be a pretty honest, diligent guy who clearly had a ton of experience in, in mm-hmm. cannabis. How that came about, I, you know, I can't say. But he was, uh, he was an enthusiast. He knew what was going on. And uh, I always said to him, I said, hey, look, you seem like a, you're a guy I would do that business with. Mm-hmm. And if it ever comes within, the way I told him, I said, if it's with, inside driving distance, <laughs> then I take I take a hard look at it, and he we didn't bring it up for a couple of years, and I was actually in India, in February of 2019, and I get a call from this guy, and I said, oh man, what's you know what's going on? This must be real late, back in uh, Dallas, and he said, hey, guess what? There, it's illegal in driving distance, and I was uh, I was intrigued, and I told him, hey, as soon as I get back, let's jump in the car. I put a retainer in with an attorney. In Oklahoma City, he said, hey, it's legal mm-hmm. medically as of a couple of months in Oklahoma. And I was genuinely interested. I put a retainer down with an attorney up there. Uh, that's the first person I wanted to talk to. Hey, what what are the rules? Is this real? Can we actually do this? And uh, we, we went up and then got the ball rolling. So... That's awesome. So you created this venture in Oklahoma. Correct. How did you decide what part of or what segment of the cannabis industry to get into? I was pretty fixated on retail. Okay. Yeah, and why I, is that? Because I am, I mean, and some of this was, a, uh, you know, I didn't have all my facts straight, but I, I figured the barrier to entry in retail, I also, I felt we had the competence to do it, right? Uh, and also my intuition was, uh, the most valuable thing to have is a customer base. That mm-hmm. if you have access to a retail customer base, that's a that's a, a terribly valuable asset for a business in the early goings. So I, I, I felt everything I'd studied about getting into processing or growing seemed very high liability, high likelihood of failure, and I also, you know, early on said, hey, there's not a lot of whole, there's not a whole lot of B two B business here for us to take in the early running. So uh, I, I figured we could leverage the market uh, at a relatively lower cost, buy and sell product uh, through a retail shop. Mm-hmm. I, the, the idea of a grow then and even now, I'm not as comfortable with because I knew I had already been exposed to a lot of disaster stories. You know, mm-hmm. it's a long turnaround before you can flip the crop and truly cultivate and many things can go wrong. So I, I didn't think we had the... Um, we didn't have the experts in our corner that could really get after it. Uh, on the processing end, I hadn't thought about it too hard, but I knew we were going to get into it. I knew that was the vertical mm-hmm. we'd pursue okay. after retail, but retail was my priority. Okay. And so your vision was to have like a storefront Correct. where consumers will come in, mm-hmm. buy and leave. Correct. Um, what? Uh, why Oklahoma though? That's just uh, the circumstantial. Okay. You know, if, if it had been Texas, I would have been doing backflips here. I would have done whatever was necessary right. to do it here. But it was close. Uh, my partner was actually originally from Oklahoma, had Oklahoma residency. Okay. And uh, I just wanted to jump into the industry on the, on the early side. I didn't want to get into an established market. Was this still in 2019? This is tw- 2019. I think okay. twenty late or summer or late 2018 is when they had 
gone ahead and passed it uh, and said, hey, we are now legalizing this for medical sales. Yeah. And that's what I recall. I may not, that may not be right. Maybe it had been happening longer, but this is when he brought it to my, uh, brought it to my attention. Yep. And I said, Hey, if you're willing to be boots on the ground, move to Oklahoma, be boots on the ground, I will fund this venture. Because you and I didn't meet until after I was already 2021 yeah. or so, Correct. Or, or right. around 2021 That's when right. you and I started working together. That's right. Um, and you contacted me through a common, um, friend of ours. Yep. And we started working on a few things regarding your cannabis ventures. Correct. Okay. Um, and I guess moving moving forward, mm -hmm. how did you see your your business progress um, after once you got the storefronts moving and you got into the processing? Well, it wasn't easy to get those storefronts moving. Okay. Uh, so the, tell me about some first, of the challenges. That first, uh, there's a, it's interesting. I don't know if this is applicable across the United States. I would imagine it is to some degree. But you have to have, we didn't have any leverage in the market. So when you, you know, you had to have a lease in place. You had to have your LLC established mm -hmm. and a lease in place in order to apply for a cannabis mm -hmm. license. And when we, so we went, you know, established the LLC. That didn't take a whole lot of time or, or effort. Um, and we, we established the LLC and then we started shopping retail, you know, where could we place a lease or, or purchase a property? And, uh, the complication of purchasing a property is banks will not, there is no lending of any official capacity happening. It's all private lending at terribly high interest rates. So, uh, so now we're going dollar, back to the whole banking challenges, which we'll get to, I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but so we had to lease. That became evident. But I wasn't going to lie to a bank and, and then put a dispensary in there. It would have caused a lot of problems. And uh, so we had to lease. And I'll, I'll tell you something. When this was new in Oklahoma, the number of people, the number of landlords that said, absolutely not, there will not be cannabis in my facility was ubiquitous. It was, uh, I, I'd say 9 out of 10, but it was more like 99 out of 100 spaces available would simply refuse us. So what were those discussions like? What were I mean? Nothing. They, you know, you, they'd submit a. We'd submit an LOI, okay. and the instant they became aware it was for cannabis, I said no. Now those guys that were open, and I'll tell, I'll just. So first we had to find a place that would be open to it, right? Yeah. And the guys that were open were of a of a certain variety. They're you know, um, very specific variety. It wasn't in the nicest plazas or, or the best spaces at your disposal, unless you got very lucky. They were open-minded. So some of these guys that were open-minded <laughs> were also opportunistic. So we, we found a space. My partner found uh, a, a space that was in a great location, dilapidated building. And I'll tell you the specifics. The, the, it was the entire property, including a big uh, yard, parking, and, and uh, what are now two suites. The guy was asking 1100 bucks. Uh, he marketed it for 1100 bucks. We go in, talk to the broker, tell him, uh, okay, I think we'll take this property. We, we want this one. And when we submitted the LOI and he saw that it was cannabis, we were standing there and we handed it over. Mm -hmm. And there, there was a broker and the owner. He, he had a lease agreement and he snatched it out of my partner's hand and said, oh, we'll, we'll get right back with you. And let me guess the $1,100 became $3,100. No, in fact, now they come back. Suddenly that building had two suites in it. The suite that we were in was now $7,000 a month. Yeah. It, it was not a triple short, net prior. Okay. In short, the price just significantly it went shot up. through the yeah, roof and, and the dilapidated building, which he was willing to fix up to put a tenant in. He now said, hey, uh, you know, all the, all the ceiling tiles and the roofing and the busted pipes and the broken AC, that's going to be on you, buddy. So, And so we said, okay, we're not doing this. And we went around, turned out everyone did the same thing. But I think, you know, it was a new industry. We got in there early. Mm -hmm. And uh, I imagine that's less the case these days. Uh, but yeah, that was a fun way to start. I was uh, not surprised when you said that he snatched the lease out of your hands oh, or you're out of your partner's hands. And I'm thinking, okay, this, the, the $1,100 just tripled, if not more. Oh, right? much more, much more. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, because he had leverage, right? Oh, I mean, ton they, of, they, ton they, of leverage. They, they knew what the market is like. And That's the right. fact that they were willing to be open-minded and right. negotiate with you, there was a price to pay for it. There was. And, and it did change the budget. 
you know, I came in where sure. I, I'd perform it out what this was going to take. So how did how did that how did you process your profitability at that point? Because you knew suddenly you you're you're in tips anticipating X for costs. Now it's just right. quadrupled, if not more, right? And that was just on the rent. So, yeah, right. so in order to in order uh, in order to get a license, you not only had to have a lease, but you had to have a certificate of occupancy through mm -hmm. the city of Oklahoma uh, through Oklahoma City that was you know checked off inspectors come in and check it off well we now have a dilapidated building that mm -hmm. you know so right. we we did not get our license and open our door till august we started this process in february because we had the lease mm -hmm. we had to go in there and fix this entire building get it ada compliant and do everything on what our what was dime. the budget like to fix that puzzle? so we it basically ended up costing us a total of somewhere between 250 and 300,000 dollars to get the store open and that barely maybe 40,000 dollars of that went into product so the earliest you know sometimes we'll look at photos of the first few days of opening the store there's barely any product in there because so mm -hmm. much of the liquidity i'd set aside for this just got eaten up getting this thing open but we did it. We stayed the course. Yep. We did it. And uh, it, it worked out. My partner worked his ass off and it worked out. Wow. What a, what, what a journey, right? Oh, yeah. Just to get open. It was, it was yeah. stressful. And, and of course, once you get open, you don't, you, you don't know the profitability and you no. don't know how you're going to do moving no. forward. But we had a fixed monthly expense. Yeah. We had a target of, uh, we, had, you know, we had a capital contribution target to earn back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, one thing I'll hand uh, my partner, he worked, he worked the store and, uh, you know, we event, you know, started at a hundred bucks a day, if that, got that figure up. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it the the major turning point ended up being when COVID happened. Believe it or not, so my partner had already gotten us to a pretty handsome daily figure. I think we were doing through just a lot of hard work on the ground marketing because there were rules against marketing. You couldn't just put it up on a billboard at the time in Oklahoma mm -hmm. or or do any of that. Facebook wouldn't let you market. Google right. wouldn't let you market. Uh, so a lot of a lot of guerrilla marketing, as my partner says. Uh, but so when, give me an example of, your, of a typical marketing campaign that you guys used. Uh, honestly, what we were doing back then was a lot of word of mouth. So my partner, we printed these cards okay. that had a, a first-time customer discount. And my partner was going, we had um, people that would go and, you know, stick them on cars yep. at other dispensaries. So old school. He's, a, he's an old school guy. He has no problem with aggressive competition. Okay, And then uh, he would go to bars, actually. He was really smart about going to bars and restaurants, but initially right, you know, close to the store, making friends with these guys and saying, hey, just hand these cards out and you guys come by as well. Uh, so he did just a lot of in-person networking. We got more and more people through the door, focused on service, priced ourselves competitively. And uh, it was when COVID happened that he was agile. He was extremely agile. So now it's uh, 2020. So we're... Uh, almost a year not quite a year into the business that the storefront was generating probably about three thousand dollars a day in revenue and that was profitable yep. you know uh, not not strikingly profitable but it was profitable and when covid happened my partner reacted so quickly was it deemed an essential business uh this is oklahoma so i don't know if you even had to be deemed an essential okay. business okay uh you just had to follow some general guidelines. I mean, look, it, it's Oklahoma. Okay. Um, this was not New York or San Francisco. Did you guys have any challenges with um, Oklahoma officials from OMA coming in to do surveys or anything like that? You know, um, initially they were not thrilled. These are older conservative folks that just were, they said, okay, I guess we're doing this. The state has mandated yep. it. They weren't friendly, but we did take a, we leaned in. We took a very proactive approach. I, I, I told them from, to the extent that I understood, as long as your doors are open and you're as upfront with these folks as possible. And my partner's a charming guy. Um, we let them in, followed their instructions. You know, they give you corrective action plans. Sure. Uh, but if you take, uh, if you take a, um, what's the term I'm looking for? An aggressive stance on them. They're gonna push right back. Sure, you become defensive; they become more aggressive. Hundred percent. Right. So that's not what we did. We yeah. said, "Okay, let us know. We just want to do this right." And uh, they ended up being pretty good. It, it took the time that it took, but again, we were in early. If we had done it even a year later, there would have been a big backlog of dispensaries trying to open, mm. and it might have taken a whole lot longer. It would so. have been more expensive too. 
Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So let's, let's, let's pivot a little bit. Yeah. Um, did you, uh, let's talk a little bit about Eden Rose itself. Sure. Um, you mentioned storefronts mm -hmm. and just to be clear, the Eden Rose, uh, enterprise, mm -hmm. your company is essentially, um, an overall brand of the end of the Eden Rose brand, but underneath Eden Rose, are, there are multiple verticals, which is called verticals. Mm -hmm. You have three retail shops. Mm -hmm. My understanding is you have one in Edmond, one in Oklahoma City, and one one on South Side, which is essentially Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, City right? right? The South Side of Oklahoma City. Yeah, and so you have the three storefronts, mm -hmm. but in addition to that, you also have a processing vertical as we well. Do. Okay, and when you process, do you also? Um, do B2B business or how do you sell your products to other business, uh, other competitors? We do. It's a It's now become about 25% of our total revenue. Okay. Six figures a month of revenue B2B. Um, it technically, we also sell that product into our three storefronts. Uh, but yeah, we've got uh, probably 200 dispensaries that buy from us reliably. We've got seven brands that we have trademarked inside this within the state of Oklahoma so uh we produce pre-rolls cartridges of all, of a pretty significant variety uh we also now are, are extracting so we are uh, we have BHO extraction and uh, rosin extraction which is solventless extraction um and we produce a pretty significant range of edibles as well so we're doing just about everything a processor does. And what what's interesting is what motivated this was a sluggish overpriced market. Okay. So my partner's a go-getter and he said, look, it's going to cost money, but the market is not servicing us. They're asking for too much and there's not enough guys here. It's He didn't like the quality of what they were putting out, cartridges, edibles. And he said, they're asking way too much money. And they were selling to everybody. They weren't giving us a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. So that's what motivated us to get into processing he says i need to make my own stuff but just to be clear this is in oklahoma all part of their medical cannabis this program. is all medical right That's correct. So, seed to sale grown in oklahoma yep and processed in oklahoma and sold in oklahoma and of course in oklahoma as we both know you have to have a license to cultivate you That's have to correct. have a license to manufacture slash process correct. and you have to have a separate um, license to for for retail purposes. That's correct. Um, so it, it sounds like you're outside of cultivation. You're almost semi vertically integrated by right. having those multiple licenses. Do you do transport as well? We do our own transport okay. for larger customers. The cost benefit yeah. leans in our favor. But there are customers now that are you know let's say border dispensaries along the border that are at a significant distance where we used a we use a transport company. Okay. But we have a couple of guys that have gotten their transport license. And that's, you know, you're always uh, you're always kind of doing trying to balance the equation on that. But uh, now we just we have specific customers to whom we will deliver product mm -hmm. if it's a five or ten thousand dollar transaction mm -hmm. in a single delivery. Uh, but if it's a smaller trend, there's company customers that buy 200 bucks worth of stuff. Mm -hmm. And for them, we just uh, add on the cost as a se separate line item for the cost of delivery. So as a medical dispensary in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. are you um, forming relationships with physicians? Are you forming relationships with just consumers? How, how, what type of relationships do you form in Oklahoma to, to really see your dispensaries thrive? It's been a consumer, consumer right. uh, engagement. You know, there's, there's other than the good fortune of my partner understanding the product, he's also a pretty righteous Southern man who said, Hey, we're going to, the market's overcharging. You know, I admittedly, I would tell him, hey, if the market's willing to charge this much and they're paying it, charge it. He said, no, they're charging too much. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we always priced ourselves effectively. And I've had a pretty significant customer service focus as in re let's really walk these folks through uh, and find what they're looking for, even if it ends up being a less profitable or a smaller total transaction. And he also, his big thing, he's, he's pretty passionate about cannabis so not just the business but also that hey this helps people you mm -hmm. know he, he would always tell me the narrative prior of people that were on all kinds of uh, prescriptions that were able to wean off and move to cannabis so he as a, as a consequence of him being so fair in pricing we have a really significant range of customers so you walk into the store you'll see someone deep into their 80s maybe in a wheelchair coming in 
Uh, it's always interesting to see, right? Because yeah. they, they're essentially from the generation of reefer madness and, oh, and that stigmatized the entire industry. But now they're consumers and Absolutely. now they need it, right? So yeah. it's, uh, I don't want to call it hypocritical, but in some ways the generation has um, stigmatized an entire industry, but right. now that they need it, they're yeah. consumers. Well, they a lot of these people might have been consumers back then. It was just risky it could. for them. Yes. You know what of I course. mean? So, of course. Uh, but yeah, it's it's um, we've been principally focused on uh, as far as the dispensaries are concerned, customer engagement, word of mouth. Now, if you go to Oklahoma City, you're going to see our billboards up, and we've taken a more mm -hmm. aggressive stance in presenting ourselves. So let's go back to the consumers. You said all walks of life, pretty much. Correct. Right you have an 80 year old in a wheelchair. You could have a guy who's I don't know, 25 years old. Correct. You Low know, to high income, variety right. of different professions. What what would you say is the is the average in the sense of age and type of uh, qualifying conditions that 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 drive them into your dispensaries for for what purpose? So we've got um, if I had to guess, and mm -hmm. this would be valuable for me to take a look at, but if if I, if I'm guessing, I'd say twenty five to thirty five, mm -hmm. you know, middle income earners, uh, and they are. A very significant portion of people are weaning themselves weaning themselves off of prescription drugs, which I did not anticipate. I did not know that, but I've seen this happen where they're thanking my partner, who mm -hmm. loves to just be at the shop and engage with customers, saying, "Man, you know, I was on painkillers, or I was on sleeping pills, or I was on anti-anxiety pills, and this has fit in quite nicely." And not all of these people are smoking flour. You know, many of them are using edibles or using tinctures or mm -hmm. doing something else. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's pr probably what you'd expect. 25 to 35, the, the vast majority of revenue, if we place it that way, we're enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. uh, it fits into their life in, in some manner or the other, oftentimes recreationally, probably. And, uh, and of course, in Oklahoma, it's really easy to get your hands on medical um, I believe so. Compar not, comparison, comparably to other states. Yeah, I don't know how tough it is in other states. All my friends have them, uh, friends that have no medical issues. Mm -hmm. I think everyone, the narrative I've heard, I actually don't have one. I don't, uh, I don't know if they're handing And there's up. a card program in Oklahoma. You there's actually a have to show program. your card. There's no pro card program here. Yeah, you you do, have, to, to enter the premise uh, premises and remain on the premises and transact with us, you must show your medical. That's right. Uh, medical license. But, you know, the, the, the story is always, oh, you just tell me you got something with your eyes, glaucoma or something like that. And the doctor just kind of signs it off. I've heard that in Colorado. I've heard that in California. I don't know for sure. But I don't believe it's uh, distinctly difficult in Oklahoma per se. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know for sure. Okay. So you have this medical car program. How do you guys verify the, the prescription? Uh, so there's a couple of simple measures, you know, you can run it under a, a black light. And now at this stage, mm -hmm. the softwares, the, the point of sale softwares we use, you can quickly scan them and just verify that it's still up to date, so on and so okay. forth. It's a tough card to, tough card to forge. It's not okay. too, not that straightforward. It's a nice, uh, encrypted card. Okay. So we can just scan them in. In the early days, there were people that clearly had right. bunk <laughs> cards and I, you know, our stance was, Hey, we're not, we're not doing anything illegal. If, if we don't feel comfortable, we will refuse the customer. So how do you feel about the uh, the metric system uh, that put the seed to sell uh, oh, software? Tough, I, isn't it? It's mandated now as of oh, about a year mandated. ago. And they were, it was tough. That was a tough. Uh, because that's an extra cost. It it was, it, it's it, an extra cost. Of but course. It's, it's an extra burden too. It was, what was tough was we were already, I don't know, was that last year or was that the year before? I want to say it was September of last year. Last year yeah. is when you needed to be live, but it took many, many months to get That's into right. it. That's right. And what had happened is you had an industry and our business infrastructure, wholesale was kicking. At that time, we were probably already doing 70, 80,000 a month of B2B sales, which is, that's, those are cheap units. Okay. One thing we haven't discussed, Oklahoma is inexpensive. Okay. The, mm -hmm. the cost of goods at point of sale are, they must be the lowest in the country. We have to sell very competitively. So wholesale is even more competitive. So we had built this whole infrastructure. We had ways of doing things. You know, hey, we if we only sold 200 units of a product, we only made 200 units of a product. Mm -hmm. But now you've got all these metric standards that complicated things significantly. And it seemed to complicate things most significantly for the growers because they had to tag it from the seed yep. and put place multiple tags on it. Whereas, you know, prior to that, I don't know exactly how they were doing it. 
but it created a lot of um, what kind of burns did it create for you guys and as a processor as a as a retailer you had to the the, the principal thing was you had to be able to track that product so so we as processors are not the cultivator That's we right. are buying either flour and extracting from it or buying pre-extracted you know we call it distillate yep. or r resin raws and all those products and putting them into edibles or cartridges that's right but in that step you do have to retest a product so just because richard's you know og kush is tested once we convert that to let's say even a pre-roll believe it or not the same flour crushed up now put in a pre-roll must be retested and what what this has what this has done what are you is, testing for they're testing for contaminants, yep. uh, which is what prevented from reaching the shelves, and then other, you know, cannabinoids and and terpenes, et cetera, which then either help deliver value to the product or not. So Richard walks in, he's got twenty bucks to spend. He might prioritize taste, which is typically through terpenes, taste, and smell, while uh, you know TJ might prioritize just pure THC content. Mm -hmm. uh, so that the testing is essential in that manner as well. That hey, what. What are the characteristics? But of course, if there's contaminants, it's not going on the shelf, you know? Okay, so you're testing. What are you doing with the data once you test it? And do you do the testing You have to yourself? place that on a tag. No, these are third-party labs. Uh, we've had some fun journeys with those too. Okay, tell uh, us about the labs that you use. So we, you know, there's a few labs in the state and uh, some of them are good at what they do and some of them are absolutely horrible at what they do. And <laughs> that's, but that's the case everywhere. That's in all businesses across all industries. So we have landed at a, at a good lab. You know, they, they take a core portion of product. So they're not going to actually test a pound of cannabis. They take a representative right. portion a of that product. That's right. And you have yeah. to clearly define the volume and the mass of the product you're delivering. And based on that, they tell you, here's how many, here's how much THC, here, here are the other can, uh, cannabinoid and terpene qualities. And does this have contaminants in it that would be a risk to the consumer and we have a pretty darn good record that's a part of picking good partners yeah you know uh, uh vendors uh we haven't had issues too many issues with contaminants it, it can be interesting sometimes you know the the papers for example we wanted to start making our own blunts pre-rolled mm -hmm. blunts at one point pre-rolls are a big part of the business so my partner wanted to do it he bought would uh, you he, say that's probably the one of the more profitable products that you have are the pre-rolls uh profitable not necessarily but it's amongst uh, not necessarily the most profitable okay but it's moves so it, it represents a very significant portion of total flower sales we do count it i mean we 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 when we look at the data we see hey this sold as a pre-roll but for our purposes we think of it as a, a part of the flower sales which is still flower mm -hmm. dominates right. flower is still 80 to 90 percent of the total consumption sure in cannabis um and pre-rolls or you know blunts etc are a big part of that huge part more i did not intuit that i'm not a guy when i would go to california or colorado i'm not a guy buying a pre-roll okay but uh it's a it's a big part of it and what can happen in testing is the paper might have a contaminant the flower was fine we already had yeah. the testing so what do you do when if it's not the actual product but it's part of the paper which obviously is is part of the final product itself well, pre-metric okay you let the lab know, hey, we think something might be off, et cetera, discuss it with them, and resubmit for testing. Right? Okay. I mean, we don't want a contaminated product in the market. That is a terrible liability for a business. Uh, so we would, you know, looking at the testing provided by the, the supplier, say, hey, no, we think this is good. This must have been some other factor. Maybe the cartridge had something. Maybe the paper had something. Now, post-metric, mm -hmm. that whole, that product is tagged. So now mm -hmm. that negative test is associated with that product and you have effectively, and if you had, let's say $10,000 worth of that product, you're, you got yourself a problem. You know, even though that testing may have been faulty, that tag is now associated with a negative result that prevents it from entering uh, the line of sale, the sales pipeline. So you have to, through a much more formal sluggish channel, ask for that to be retested and reassigned or you have to scrap that product well wow, that's, that's a lot of money to scrap we have had to scrap <laughs> a whole lot of products my friend have you have you gotten uh products whether it's distillate or something else or a paper from a third party mm -hmm. where it's caused your product to be um either faulty or having contaminants and if if so what do you do do you seek do you, do, you, do you seek remedies against against them or do you yeah. just purge it and move on and 
in in the short term, you have to purge and move on. And then you, this is probably similar to a lot of other businesses, but you know, then yes, you do seek remediation from the supplier. So distillate is a big one where they'll, yeah. you know, they'll give you a certain test result. And so it's great. So it's, you know, you want 90. But then your testing results differ from theirs. And then you say, dude, what the hell? Yeah. Right. Now there are qualities you can look for. And, uh, yeah, but sometimes it happens. You know, if you're buying 10, 20, 30 pounds of flour, mm. you might not, they might have tucked in a few that had some mold on it or wasn't quite what you thought you were going to buy. You mm. can only look at so much. So that type of stuff has happened. And, uh, you know, it's not so different. You have to go back and tell them, hey, this ain't right, buddy. And if they're, right. if they're shady enough, they'll say, hey, you know, you, you bought it. It's yours now. And then you have to kind of let the market know what's going on. And fortunately, we've got a strong name in the market. So guys don't want to, us telling the market that uh, they can't be trusted. Sure. No, it's, it's, a, it's a killer for their uh, business as well. Yeah. Um, so moving forward, how do you see Eden Rose grow? Or do you, no, no pun intended, but yeah. how, do, you, do you want to grow it? Or do you want to look at other verticals? Or what do you want to do with Eden Rose? Well, we've been growing consistently. Right. Yep. We, we started with the first retail location, got uh, into processing, went into B2B, you know, wholesaling product and making our own product. So we actually, other than flour, there is nothing in our stores that is purchased from outside other than flour. We make absolutely everything, every type of cartridge, every type of extract. And I initially I was um, frustrated at the at the notion. I kept telling my partner, hey, you got to leverage the market, leverage the market. But it's turned into a pretty significant benefit for us an advantage for us mm -hmm. um we have the, the our second two locations one we applied for a license and opened that started from scratch the third most recent location uh we actually purchased a distressed property there's now a moratorium on new uh dispensary grow and processing licenses they are yep. not allowing them chances are they're going to extend that Oklahoma, i think it's been about a year and a half hasn't it's it? been a year and a half there's yeah. about two and a half years left Yep. And uh, they're, what they're basically saying is way too many guys moved in. Most of these people don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. Well, well uh, I don't know if it's the case anymore, but I know at one point, Oklahoma had more licensees than any other state in correct. the country. More than many states combined. Yeah. Because they had a very loose, uh, very loose policy for getting people in, which right. benefited them, but ended up hurting in the long run. A lot of people with some small sum of money and not a whole lot of business acumen got in. Actually, I feel for a lot of these people. They've sunk a lot of their hopes and dollars into oh, it. Trust me, I, I know. Uh, you know. A couple of uh, people I've represented uh, yeah. over the years, now they want to sell. Right. right? So, so um, there were, you know, there's a, there's a, there are some distressed, uh, there was some distressed assets out there. We liked the location, yeah. picked it up and in less than a month we were doing a thousand percent more sales a day just because we had a model in place mm -hmm. and we were our wholesale supplier. Um, more of that is likely what we would do when seeking growth. Right now we're in a holding pattern mm -hmm. uh, because one of the, th the vast majority of dispensaries grows and processors are distressed as it stands. So we are uh, amongst the, f the proud few that have always run a strong, profitable business mm -hmm. and really thought things through. I think that's what I brought to the business. Hey, here's how you structure a business and make it sustainable, right? And, right. and a lot of people have the chops and the passion, but you have to actually create a sustainable business. Mm -hmm. um, so there's we're in a holding pattern because one of the things failing businesses do is they undersell to get back as much liquidity. So there's a little bit of a, pr a pricing mess on hand, but it's slowly softening. But we're in a holding pattern. We've, we've uh, got these two secondary locations doing absolutely fantastic. And uh, I mean, not quite the revenue of our main location or original location, but they're in smaller markets. And uh, we're in a holding pattern. We're slowly introducing more product to the market, optimizing the businesses, getting rid of slow movers. Give me an example of a new product that you're introducing to the market. Uh, so, for example, you know, as you, this is real basic, but, mm -hmm. you know, one thing that we have done is start to let the market bring products to us. And the more and more of them are coming. Vendors keep showing up because we're an mm -hmm. established commodity in uh, Oklahoma City. So, for example, we're strong in pre-rolls when we make all our own. And we had a vendor show up that said, hey, look, there's these now glass tip uh, cones, pre-roll cones that you put into machines. And that's been a hit. We said, hey, this is something different. Uh, let's give it a shot. And it, we produced it, took the risk on the, on the front end, produced it, got a metric tag, put a little brand on it. Uh, it takes three, four months 
to get the product out, okay. tested, verified. And we like to run it under an official brand. We don't just white label. Uh, put it out on the shelf and did great. Uh, new types of edibles, incorporating live resin and rosin into both edibles and cartridges. Again, it takes time. You have to buy the hardware. You have to make sure, you know, when you're running something on a vape, uh, you have to mix in glycerin, et cetera. It has to actually run. Otherwise, mm -hmm. those are, you know, you they consume that product on a hot plate or however it works. So uh, constantly bringing live resin and rosin into edibles and cartridges. Um, new strains of cannabis constantly coming onto the shelves. Is that an expensive process? What's up? Buying from like third parties and having to essentially retest it and um, essentially you're repackaging it and putting it on your shelves. Per, per unit, yeah. it's going to cost you less. But upfront, it's definitely going to cost you more. So okay. if it doesn't take off, if it's not a product that begins to sell in significant volumes, then it's typically not worth it. And that's been yeah. a part of our journey. So you, you, know, just, take a, you take a hit financially. Oh, there's um, no doubt. Or, yeah. and, I mean, you have to have the... It requires dis all business requires discipline yeah. if you're going to do it su successfully, right? The p passion only goes so far. So that has been a journey, and, and metric made that exceedingly more imperative. Mm -hmm. That hey, if it's not, we can no longer. It's no longer worth producing a product that we sell 50 units of a month. It's just this makes absolutely no sense. You know, and, and it's both um, interesting to see, and um, I almost feel. Um, a sense of compassion to the industry and some of the stakeholders, right? Is right. that what you do find is a lot of passion and a lot mm -hmm. of drive, right. but maybe not the ability or the, the foresight to, to to say, okay, these are strategies we're using right. or to to make it profitable. You right. do see a lot of uh, unprofitable businesses in this industry. In a lot of industries, but you know, another thing this this business is is marred with is you're not going to get a lot of people yet, at least in Oklahoma, I can't speak, I'm sure in California it's mm -hmm. different, but people that have the competence and qualifications from just the business world are not yet comfortable. We had a couple of guys, you know, mm -hmm. that we hired off of Indeed that had, let's say, accounting experience mm -hmm. from a you know, they could have worked at in Lowe's or, or these companies. And when they showed up and see a bunch of, you know, uh, people with tattoos up their, to their eyeballs, you know, that are stoned all day they didn't feel comfortable mm -hmm. so what you had were people ready to work hard but not people that had the experience in accounting mm -hmm. in inventory management mm -hmm. uh or or people that hadn't woken up to the idea that hey you think you're a functional stoner you're not i had to kick that policy and we really we, you know we were lenient early on oh that's interesting and a lot of these young guys <laughs> and you know what they were doing before they joined you know they sure. had their jobs but you know what they were doing before they came and and they had a they had a, an idealistic vision of what it would look like to come and work in the, sp the space officially. Sure. And they think they can wake up and, and rip a bong and come in and be effective. And There's it, levels to being a functional stoner. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and those people that are, are some of the most disciplined people. They work out. Those people that are truly functional stoners, and they're sure as hell not, you know, ripping bongs all day long, mm -hmm. you know. So there's those barriers have been difficult and uh, so, you know, you might have the drive, you might be willing to organize this, organize that, but you really have to run the numbers and uh, you have to make tough decisions and we're, we're getting better and better at that. Good. So, Good. Um, so are there any desires, any, any endeavors here in Texas beyond Oklahoma? Of course. I mean, look, if I, if I could have uh, more proximity to a business, I have a lot of faith in myself as a businessman. I've, I've, these two ventures have been difficult, high effort high dollar ventures. That's not what I'm used to. I'm not a tech guy. I'm not a, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't start some software or do any of that stuff. Not to say that it's easy, but you know, I know the grind. I know how to manage people and manage my money. Um, I built both the businesses debt-free with my own capital. I would love to be involved in the state of Texas, but I, you know, as I've learned from you there, first of all, it's Texas. It's not Oklahoma. There's more mm -hmm. people in DFW than all of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So the, the financial barriers of, to, of entry are going to be more significant. There's some big old boys, as you had described to me, getting into the business. Big, big funds, nine-figure guys jumping yeah. in. And the states, that's what they want. They want people with financial capacity to get into it. But absolutely, I would love to do this business here. I've learned a whole lot in Oklahoma, and uh, I would love to do this business here. But right now, we're focused on um, optimizing these businesses, making them more profitable. And uh, I'm, as you know, in terms of 
how this, where this business goes, I think we're going to continue to add product and add customers on the B2B side and probably slowly add locations. But I'm also, I'd be enthusiastic at the notion of uh, seeking uh, sales of individual locations or individual assets that we've created. You know, I'm open. We're doing it now. I, I, I deem it a success. Um, and we're just going to keep trucking forward. Yeah, earlier you mentioned your your parents didn't want you to go to Oberlin. What, what was, I mean, obviously you're of Indian and my, descent. And my parents okay. uh, don't know about the cannabis business. Are so, you kidding me? Yeah, so. they don't That's know. okay. Well, they will now after watching this TV. Yeah, segment. let's see. Let's see. <laughs> hopefully, they're, hopefully they're not uh, watching too many uh, cannabis podcasts. But um, so was there a reason to not tell them? Just I actually haven't told too. I don't tell as I've grown. I, I'm not telling too many people too much of what's uh, happening in my life. But no, the, I just think it would make them anxious. There's still a taboo. Yeah. About this industry. I think that's where I'm going with it. Right. right. Is that um, earlier um, as you were telling me about your parents didn't want you to go Oberlin or play oh, football. Yeah. Right. So right there, I knew to. Um, that your parents are probably somewhat conservative, right? Oh, yeah. And they probably old have uh, an old school Indian mindset. Right. Uh, let's just be honest, call it what it is. Right. It's, it's a cultural, That's uh, right. it's a cultural thing. Um, and so, you know, talking to old traditional or older traditional uh, Indian cultured parents mm -hmm. about your investment in operations mm -hmm. in cannabis, that can't be an easy discussion. Well, the, it, with my parents in particular, and probably a lot of uh, traditional Indian parents, yeah. it's all about risk assessment. So okay. what they want is for you to be successful okay. financially and in terms of your respect in society, which is why they'll push you towards law. They want, you know, they would love what you do, be a lawyer, okay. be an engineer, be a doctor. Yeah. That's also a risk reward calculation that, hey, once you have achieved that, your the risk element of your financial future has minimized. So they'd actually probably be quite happy if I told them about it today because it is a successful seven-figure business earning a handsome amount of profit. Yeah. What would be difficult to say, well, why didn't you tell us sooner? That's the only reason I'm not talking about it now. Uh, but they'd be thrilled. Okay. You know, they yeah. didn't want me to get into the tile business either. Okay. But so, the so the conversation probably would have been very different had you told them about cannabis back in 2019. Yeah, they'd be like, no, you're gonna lose all your money. This is gonna be a fiasco. What about, you know, you'll get robbed or okay. something will happen. The unknown is quite stressful. You know, my father's a doctor, mom's a lawyer, hardworking, mm -hmm. you know, work till your, your eyes are bleeding type of people. Um, so they're not, they don't necessarily, now they'd be thrilled. Oh, you got yourself a successful right. business of some kind. They'd, I find that I find that dynamic really interesting because I still remember telling my my parents when I decided to fall into the cannabis industry and um, the, the the feedback I got from my own dad was you know why do you want to get into this you had right. you ha you have a thriving healthcare right practice you know this is kind of a you know it's kind of a rogue business and right. things could happen this right. could happen and then of course you know now I'm ten years into it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the conversation's very different now. Oh yeah. No doubt so, about it. It'll happen. It, it'll come down the pipeline or maybe I can avoid it altogether. And yeah, I'd be fine with that as well. Now, wh where do you think, um, just, just in general, where, where do you think the industry's going, uh, in Oklahoma on that, in, um, and on a national front, just in your own personal opinion? Yeah. Well, based on what I've studied about California, Colorado, because I have, I've now taken many trips back. Mm -hmm. These are, they've gone full wreck. So that, of course, is coming to Oklahoma, and that will slowly come to every market um, once the state is comfortable with the revenue they earn and feel as though they have things under control. As it happened in California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, and other such markets, there's, you know, there were, were the cream is rising to the top. Mm -hmm. The market will be better established. There's already modes of consolidation, which we're a part of. We've now purchased a... a, a distressed dispensary and, and and so on and so forth and uh, so in oklahoma i think that is happening as we speak people are dropping out of the of the race hoping they can get some money for their license now that there's a moratorium even that's not as straightforward as it looks mm -hmm. um so the the market's going to optimize there's going to be some degree of consolidation big money guys are starting to move in now that it's mm -hmm. stabilizing you're starting to see some groups from california come in from Colorado. These are the two, you know, the two states where the big dogs are at and Washington. Yeah. Because they've been at it for so long. Um, so just on a pure business end, 
that's what's happening. And then, of course, for Oklahoma, recreational will come down the pipeline. We will have to get used to, you know, 40-some percent tax per per uh, dollar of products sold, how they're going to manage. You know, they, they have different rules in different states. In Colorado, if you go to a dispensary, they'll have this half of the space is medical if you have your card yep. and everything's cheaper this half is recreational yeah in other places they have to be completely separated and in some yep. places uh i've been to dispensaries but you know it's funny i've i've seen i've um i've i know about that mm -hmm. i'm familiar with that right but the actual product itself doesn't differ that much no it's the same product <laughs> so. you're gonna pay a whole lot more and in recreation here's one thing that has happened recreationally uh they minimum they give you very serious max uh, maximum doses. You have small maximum doses. So today, you you know we sell 500 milligram bags of edibles. We actually have a 10,000 milligram bag of edibles. Recreation, mm -hmm. I don't think they let you exceed 100 milligrams per package. Mm -hmm. So uh, that'll be interesting. It's something we're looking forward to. It almost passed in Oklahoma. It did not, and so we said, okay, no big deal. You know, mm -hmm. let's keep rolling. Mm -hmm. So that'd be an interesting kind of automatic growth path for us. What we're hoping is. You know, if Richard with a medical card walks in, he can, we can just put the same, have the same tag on the product. One is for your med, if you're a medical patient, here's your price. And if you're recreational, here's your price. Mm -hmm. uh, if they force us to operate out of two separate spaces, we'll, we'll deal with it accordingly. But we're going to ride that wave as soon as it comes up. We're constantly monitoring what's happening uh, in the courts about that. Well, kudos to you guys. That's Thank awesome. You. It sounds like you're doing well. Um, so obviously, far, so um, after a year plus of me, you being a client, we finally uh, get to talk a little bit more in depth about yeah. your stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, happy about that. Any last last one-liner one uh, statements about what you want to do and anything about your business? Just Well, hey, um, I want to continue growing this. I think, I think it's a great space and it's one... Uh, if you have investment capital, it's worth exploring in states like Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, and all of these traditionally conservative states are actually some of the most friendly places. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you can find a good partner it's uh, and you have some competence in business, you have some discipline, it's not a bad space to go look at investing in. Mm -hmm. And um, I need you to keep me posted on when I can get into it in Texas. That's Absolutely. It. That's what I'm here for. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for making the time to come in. It's, uh, it's been enjoyable. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. All right. Thanks, CJ.